Welcome, welcome to Studio Secrets A to Z. I'm Anthony J. Resta here with one of the most celebrated and recorded drummers in the world and a dear friend, um, Dave Maddox. I mean, it's just an endless list here, but we can mention Paul McCartney, Elton John, George Harrison, Jimmy Page, and on and on and on and on. I've got like a massive thing here to get into, and I'm just honored to have you here, Dave. Welcome. AJ, I'm flattered to be on this podcast with you. I have so much respect and love for you as a producer and as a musician. So I'm fl- and you've had some quite august members uh, of the musical establishment so far on your podcast. So I'm flattered to be included, man. Thank you so much. Well, we're we're so so happy to have you. And uh, normally, how I like to start these is I like to go way way back in the way back machine to people's childhoods and just start off like when were you bitten with the 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 music bug like how tell me a little bit about your childhood and how that all happened well i don't mind going down that path but um i'm always concerned that if i get too much into the weeds your listeners will fall into a deep coma so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll i'll give you the pracy version okay. apparently i'm reliably informed at the age of 6 i crossed the road um from where my parents had a pub in devon and there was a market across the road and it had an upright piano. And I'm reliably informed that I sat down and started playing tunes. Wow. I started playing tunes on the piano and that was the first time they knew anything about it. Um, I had some lessons. Um, my piano teacher apparently, again, allegedly um, gave up and said, I can't teach this precocious little twerp anything. <laughs> And then I put it to one side and then I picked up the knitting needles, a pair of knitting needles and some bongos at age 13 and made the terrible mistake thinking that the drums were going to be easier than the piano. And it went from there. <laughs> That's a great summary. It really is. I, well, I read online somewhere um, that you were a, a, an apprenticed piano tuner at some point. Yep. And, and you did have this obviously incredible ear. Did, did that teach you anything valuable, do you think? Or what did that do for you? I remember the, the, um, when I went for the interview as a piano, uh, a, an apprentice piano tuner not long after leaving school, the, the, one of the tests was they played a couple of notes on the piano and said, <coughs> excuse me, and said, um, what, if this is C, what's this? So I, I I haven't got perfect pitch, but I've got relative pitch. Um, and then I I anyway I got I got taken on as an apprentice, and I did that for nine months. Uh, I think it was about nine months. Then I joined. I got what I really wanted to do. AJ was work with drums. I was I I got the drum bug, and I got a job as a spotty apprentice in what was then London's equivalent of the pro drum shop in LA, you know, I pro, see. You know yeah. and, and it was this shop called drum city. And I was in, I was in heaven. I was meeting all the, all the then rock players. I was meeting the jazz players. I was meeting the studio players. This is mid sixties. Wow. And I got, I had a great, uh, the manager of the shop was, was, was a real, incredibly he was a great player and he was very very well informed and he taught me a lot about the mechanics of the instrument and I also learned a lot 
about what was right and what was wrong and that the guys were turning because you know I'm I'm 17 and, and and all I can see is Buddy Rich and Joe Morello and they're going you need to check out the bassy band you need to check out this guy you need to check out Davy Tuff so I'm getting a real broad education on the drum world and then again cut a long story short I got a gig um which lasted about three years with a kind of Lawrence Welk band wow and I did that for three years and like strict tempo ballroom dancing. Wow. And then and then kind of a little bit of pop music at the weekends. And I went from that to Fairport. Wow, that's that's great training though. I mean, it really helped your time and all that. And you know, studying Joe Morello, for instance, I mean, like he's one of my favorite drummers uh since I was a kid. Just listening to Sounds of the Loop, the solo he did on the oh. Dave, Dave Clark, uh, not Dave Clark, <laughs> uh, Dave Brubeck um, Jazz in the USA album. I just literally yeah. sit and listen to it for hours and hours. There was something about the way he hit the drums. Uh, it, it's just magical, you know. So that's another thing we share. I, th- they, I think a, a lot of people o- overlooked. I mean, Brubeck allegedly got a bit of a bad rap because he got so popular, but. It was a really kind of groundbreaking band. I think um, I think Dave wrote some great compositions. And Joe, I mean, Joe was one of those iconic and remains to this day an I- iconic player. And, you know, with the, and getting into the weeds very briefly, when you look at the footage and you see of them playing live and you see one microphone over the drum kit and you hear that sound. It's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, it's, it's educational, yeah. And this is one thing that I think all drummers, you know, need to keep in mind is, is you know, there's so many talented, incredible technical players and people that have all the knowledge and skills, but like a sound is something different. And that's one of the things recording, I was lucky enough to record you several times and you are so good at tuning the drums and the way you hit the drums with such, I don't know, it's just authority. You know, and it just you just mean it. Every note, you mean it. And that that's something you can't really put on paper, you know. And it's a little esoteric for me to go there, but I just had to mention that because uh, having worked with you, that was one of the, my experiences with you. It's like, you know, I've been a drummer my whole life, but I never, ever made the drums sound like the way you make them sound. And I'm just... I'm, I'm just being honest, you know. So I mean, that's well, that, science. Thank you. That's very flattering, and 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 you're 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 kind of leading into something I feel that's going on these days. These days, everybody can play in time, and everybody's a song drummer. You know, right. everyone's a song drummer, and everyone plays in time. So it really comes down to your choices. You know, like. Are you sure you want to hit that crash cymbal at that point in the song? And then you get into how are you going to hit it? <laughs> and that's a massive, you know. And then and and then and then we, and then we and then we extend that thinking into the drums and the blah blah blah. And and it, and that's I think that's what separates players because, as I say, these days everybody plays in time and everybody's a you know inverted commas. And I don't mean it. I'm not implying a derogatory thing but everyone you know you talk to drummers oh yeah man i'm a song drummer well you know everybody should be a song drummer whether you're playing jazz or whatever you're playing you sh- it should be about the material so what separates us are what you're referring to is the musical choices the sound we get and how we get the sound out of the instrument and when we choose to play this that or the other and yeah. when we make it an event in the song like that's one of the things i i remember about you is like there'd be this place in the song where there'd be this event and it would just be this 
it might be just a floor tom and a snare, but it was not where you expected it. And it just, it left space for the next vocal lead in, but it just made your, made your heart sore. It's like, this is the, the natural gift that you have. And I think people can learn that uh, from listening to your discography. And one of my favorite stories that you told me about was you had done a, ma- uh, or somebody had done a massive take for uh, Glenn Johns and there was one cymbal crash that was too loud. And oh, it was me. Yeah. Was it you? It was yeah. This is the story. I and I, and I, I love I, this. I I I I've, <laughs> I have to be honest, AJ. I've been dining out on this for years because it's true. Because <laughs> it's true. So I'm I'm in my I don't know mid late probably mid to late twenties, and I'm full of piss and vinegar. And I you know as we all know at that age we all know everything, right? Right. So he gets a drum sound with three mics. Yeah. And it, it, we're in Olympic, and it was either for I can't remember which session. I think it was either Joan. Joan Armour Trading's Love and Affection, or it might have been an Andy Fair with a low album. I can't remember. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I go upstairs and he goes, so what do you think? Of- oh, that was the other thing. I said, do you want me to hit the bass drum? And he goes, no, just play. And then when you've run the song through and come up. And I go upstairs and he says, so what do you think of the drum sound, Dave? And I'm full of piss and vinegar. And I go, yes, Glenn, it's, it's rather good, you know. It was, in fact, it was incredible because it was Glenn Johns. It was three <laughs> so, and I said, and then, and then within a minute or so, I go, yeah, but there's just one thing, Glenn. That cymbal crash at the end of the of the chorus, it was a bit loud. And he leans into my face and he goes, "Well, you better not hit it so hard, then, had you? <laughs> <laughs> you can, you can beat, you can beat that out." So I and I go, AJ, I go whoa you know like you know yeah. all of a sudden the learning curve has gone up at like you know 89 degrees i've got oh and and i think like the following day i said something about the yeah could the cross stick be a bit louder or something he said well you better play it a little bit harder then, <laughs> hadn't you? and that was the that was the start with him and also you know and 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 sideways on that john woods the engineer who did you know, the Fairpool stuff, the Nick Drake stuff, blah, 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 him. And also to to us, it's parallel, um, Jeff Emmerich. They both imbued in me that sense of if it ain't happening right off the floor, there's only so much I can do. Now, Glenn was arguably at the extreme of that with the three mic thing. But it really taught me about about balance balance yeah between the, your limbs it, it, and this and the yeah it's incredible yeah it's when like, I, yeah, yeah when i talk about this at clinics um aj when i do drum clinics i say if you've got it okay it can be a great sound it can be a great sound but if you've got you know like the the, the pinstripes with half a ton of gaffer tape duct tape on your toms and you're using the new 26 inch mega bell blah blah when you listen to the overheads the all the overheads are going to hear with symbols. So you're immediately out of balance with yourself. Now, having said that, we, you especially, and I, you especially, because you really know what you're talking about, that can be a, a cool sound, but it's, it is kind of out of balance with it, with it, with itself. And, and it's, then we get into the deeper thing of whether you're using the overheads just to pick up the symbols or to pick up, kind of 60, 70, 80% of the drum cell and use the other microphones as fillers. Exactly. There isn't really a wrong or a right way these days, but I think what Glyn and, and Jeff and John Wood did was 
start me off with under, that understanding of, of balance. And I still try to do that today, even if someone says, can we put towels sure. on the on the and go for the Ringo thing? I, I try to back off on the symbols so that blah, blah, blah. To create the balance, you have to. You yeah. Know? You know, otherwise, yeah. you know, I, I see a lot of drummers, um, you know, recording even on big records sometimes, like I feel like drummers in myself, I used to be like this, but I don't anymore, but I used to tend to overly hit the cymbals. They don't need to be hit as hard as you think they need to be hit in the recording studio because they're, they, they, they just have a different sound. You know, they can sound very powerful, like with a medium hit. They don't have to be like, some people just pummel them. And I feel like when you pummel yeah. them, they almost die in a funny way. They, they just, the impact is just messed up. That's something that's, I think, yeah. yeah, and I think I I I, I think um, I I agree, and I think also that when you know, like if somebody would to play devil's advocate to that thinking, someone might say, "Well, what if it's a heavy rock thing and I want a big sound?" Well, Bonzo, and again, one or two mics, because he understood the balance thing. You know, we would talk about this. He really understood that. He really understood that balance thing. That's why when you listen to his drums in isolation, which you can these days, courtesy sure. of the internet, blah, 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 the amount of ring on the drums coming off the drums is phenomenal. He's got them cranked like nobody's business. But by the time, as Jonesy would say, by the time Jimmy put the army on, which was which was Jonesy's nickname for all the overdubs that Jimmy would do, it would soak up the excesses of that ring and it would make the drum sound big. And uh, but so this is I, wow. I agree. Now, and what just going down that path very briefly, AJ. Uh, if you look at early footage of Bonzo, there's a lot of flailing going on yep. in the early days. You look at the back end of them; he's just. He's just sitting on it, and he's not really, he's not really pummeling. He's not, yeah. his, his arm isn't coming back. He's because he he's realised that you don't need to. It's this thing that I read about with this guy who, who had gave Steve Smith some lessons, and these and the guys, this teacher said, you know, you know, what has those drums ever done to you? <laughs> and and Steve and Steve said, well, I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm you know I'm trying to you know project. And the guy and the teacher said, no, what you're, what you're after, you're after a big sound. And that doesn't equate with hitting the things as as hard as, as you, you can. think. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. really, really interesting. So you actually yeah. had a conversation with John Bonham. I mean, I mean, you, you actually. Oh, yeah. We, we yeah. knew each other. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that, that, yeah. that, that, that's there. That's the well, whole... I got introduced to him through Fairport's bass player, Dave Pegg. <laughs> was in Band of Joy, the original Band of Joy, with Bonzo and 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 um, Plant. Wow, wow, wow! So not long after Dave Pegg came into Fairport, he introduced me to Bonzo and the rest of the band, who turned out to be Fairport fans, and they they would come to Fairport gigs, and we would go to Zeppelin gigs. That's just incredible. So, I, that's just, and I had yeah. I had dinner I had dinner with him a couple of times, and anyway, blah, blah. that's just so so interesting. So did he influence you <laughs> as far as the tuning? The, like the the he, he cranked the heads pretty tight and like got Big a lot time. of ring. So you learned a lot Big from time. him. Yeah. Big time. They sat in. Fairport played at the Troubadour in 1970, under frozen to death. And he sat in on my kit and I had the, what I thought was the perfectly tuned Gretsch kit at the time. 
and he sat in on him and Page and Jonesy sat in with Fairport. And I went to the back of the room, the back of the troubadour. In those days, you didn't mic the drums. And I heard my drums at the back of the room unmiked, and they sounded like one big pudding. <laughs> it was just everything was because I was tuning, obviously, sitting behind the drums, not taking into projection. And, and, wow. and my drums just sounded like one big pudding. And that was another part of the learning curve. And, and I think it was that happened before I was doing those sessions with Glyn. And when I listened to the, the, the not that I do it often, but when I listened to my, the tuning, the playing is, it's okay. But when I listened to the tuning on, on that first Joan, on Armour Trading album that I did with Glyn, I can hear, I've gone, oh yeah, I need to take these, the pitch of these drums up so that they speak into those big microphones. So that whole kind of, the first tom being the 12 with it nice and low and some tape. Forget it. That's not going to work. Yeah. Because that, that's not going to get up to those those two 67s. That ain't going to happen. So, yeah, you're not really so, filling, up, filling up the mics with the, all the, the potential. It, it, exactly. Yeah. Another yeah. one of my favorite stories. I, I remember a lot of things from our conversations in the past, but there was one that you actually worked with George Martin, I think, on at least one occasion, if not more. Um, you lots. lots of occasions. That's I mean, he's one of my heroes and that's not another long topic. But I remember you told me that you came in one day with with two two uh, heads on the bass drum. It was the first time maybe you had worked with him. Was it Silla Black or something? And it he, was Silla Black. And yeah. And I remember him saying, uh, can you take off the head the front head because that, that was starting to be popular and you looked at him like he had three heads and said no <laughs> yeah. can you believe how much piss and vinegar i had for me to say no to jeff emmerich and george martin that's just amazing can you take the head of dave can you take them i go no <laughs> <laughs> that's i mean it's just magnificent. when i think of that i think i was i think that was really early days you yeah, know and yeah. i was i was you know, Just again, learning. you know, yeah. 20 and you think, you know, you think, you know, yeah, I can't believe that I did. And I think I'm, when I worked with him after that, which might have been, it might have been one of the sessions for Paul or something or it, uh, or maybe the Gary Brooker album. I can't remember. Anyway, I think I said, by the way, you do, I'm surprised you're, you're even <laughs> you're even you've even called me for this. Cause, do you know what happened? And, he, and I think he said. Oh, I don't think I remember that. I went, thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, you, you took off the front head so fast, he didn't even know what was happening. <laughs> oh, oh, right, you know, would you like me to play the drums upside down, Mr. Martin? I'd be happy to do that for you. Yeah. So that that experience of working with George, um, what what did you take away from his um, perspective uh, as a song, you know, Obviously, he was very, very much into the construction of the songs and the the drum parts. Did he have a lot of influence on on you as far as like choices of fills and things like that, or how? What was it like? No, no, he, no, he just saw the big picture, and he was very gentle at guiding at guiding you. You know, like if you if you played something like with Glenn, very different approaches, but both. You know, the end result justifies me. Glenn, Glenn would say, you know, would would say to you, stop faffing around. That's a bunch of bullshit, right? You know, in the nicest kind of way. But he'd be very direct. Whereas George would say, you know, more his approach was more along the lines of, um, I'm not sure whether that's working. Um, can we try something a little different there on the blah 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 blah? Yeah. And you go, yeah, okay, George, yeah, not 
all the good, and you're, you're the same, all the good people, they don't go, when it gets to the fourth bar, I want you to play the tom-tom that goes in the eighth note and the blah, blah. Oh, yeah, I hate I've, that. I've, 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 had it, I've had it with that, you know. I've had it. It's like all the best people in charge go either, yeah, that's cool, or I'm not too sure about that. Can you try something different? And you go, most people in my position you will go, okay, let me give you some options, and you find something. They don't tell you every single friggin' note to play. They, they, they present you with some opportunities and guide you down the path that they think is more appropriate than maybe the one you've come up with. And between you, you, you know, you come up with That's, that's wonderful. And that's been my philosophy with all musicians I bring in. It's like the reason you chose them to come on the session is because you admire and respect their work. So why would you want to, you know, you know, I always say why, yeah. You know, yeah. So it makes, just makes just perfect them- sense. Yeah. yeah, just give, just yeah, and, and just a little bit of guidance. And if you, yeah. if if it's if it's really really, I mean, this is something that you were, we both know, comes with a certain amount of experiences. You you you, not so much you know what you're going to get, but you know the approach. And if if it's yep. if it's really really not happening, you've probably chose the wrong player or or maybe it's or he or she's having an off day or something yeah which can but happen yeah if you, if you have to start nailing every single note down you know i mean once it, i i must admit once in a while i've on a session i i've said i hear a phrase i don't know in the middle break in the middle eight or something or at the end of the course could you play something along the lines of and you you know you you, you something specific and most Nine times out of ten, the player will play either that or come out with a better variation. Sure. And you go, oh, yeah, that's fantastic, great, now let's move on. But when you start nailing every eighth note, and I want this drum fill, and when it comes to the high, you know, sometimes, go and get a Berkeley, yeah. run- Berkeley student. Yeah, well, <laughs> sometimes you run into that with um, songwriters who are also drummers, and and that leads me to Paul McCartney. Like you've done an enormous amount of work with Paul in the studio, and he's quite a good drummer. D- how did that go? Like, tell me a little bit about working with Paul and what that was like, and the, the the camaraderie and chemistry you guys had. Hardly, I cannot recall one session where he told me what to play. Wonderful. Wow. I can't. I think again, he might have said it's more of a kind of a blah blah blah, and you go. Oh, okay. Something like with Richard Thompson, because I think once with Richard, it went, oh, damn, I think you're barking up the wrong tree. It's think, <laughs> think, blah, blah, blah. And I go, um, oh. something like this. And he go, yeah, that's it. So that's wonderful. And, you know, and, and Paul, Paul was, was, I can't recall him ever telling me what to play. That's just must have been a magical experience, that whole era. You know. Well, he's one of the nicest people I've ever worked with, and 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 I mean, what can you say? It's friggin' Paul <laughs> <laughs> I know it, it boggles my mind, and you know, I've been following your career for a long time. I'm such a fan. Like, uh, is it the Mummer the XTC album you played on? Mummer? No, um, none such. None such. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah. I I love watching. There's some videos that you can see on YouTube of you. Um, getting into it with the producer and um, he, they, Gus, yeah, yeah, Gus, right? I um, mean, that's another yeah. long story. Um, that is that. Did you meet him through Elton, Gus Dudgeon? No, um, I think I think so. Yeah, because I think 
No, I think I met him. Um, Elton produced. Elton and Clive Franks produced a singer, a great singer called Kiki D. Do you know Kiki? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kiki D. Don't go breaking my heart. Yeah. Um, and I played on, I think, her first album that that Elton produced with Clive Franks. Um, I'm on a couple of the hits, UK hits of that. And then I think I met Gus afterwards, and Gus started calling me. I have to share, here's a good Gus story for you. So Karen and I got to know Gus and Sheila Dudgeon really, really well. And after a long time, AJ, I, I mean, you know, like we spent Boxing Day with them at their house, you know, holidays. And and he said, you know, you had a really difficult reputation back in the day. And I said, oh, Christ, did I really? And then I thought about the, the thing with George Martin and taking, no, I'm not doing that. And I, and I said, oh, yeah, I, I was a bit kind of full of myself back then. I said, how come you started calling me for, for sessions then? He goes, Gus goes, I liked a good challenge. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And we went on and we, and we went on to do so many things together. And, and when Elton and Gus got back together to do the Ice on Fire album that that yep. ended up with Nikita, which I played on being a being a hit. That, that Gus got me back because, but I knew Elton from you know before then. But he got me back to play on that, and that that all went incredible. Sounds like yeah. all these records, the, the sounds are incredible. Like I, uh, none such is an, is a great example. And one of the funny videos I remember seeing is you, he, you, Andy Partridge was getting into all these like cheesy beatboxes, you know, like the CR78 and things. And and you guys were in the studio and, and it was being kind of restrictive, like in some of the respects, you know, trying to, you know, make it work with, you know, the transitions and the, the different tempo changes possibly that could occur. And you just looked at Gus and you go, well, why can't we make the machines follow us instead of us follow the machines? And you you were brilliant because that's so ahead of its time. Nowadays, we have the technology to do that. But back then, it was like, you know, primitive in comparison with synchronizers and 24, you know, two-inch tape. I mean, it was impossible. Yeah. But I really love that you speak your mind and you, 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 you know, you, you let yourself be known. And that's, that's really respectable. And that may be one of the things Gus was kind of getting on you about, but actually it's admirable. And I think it really, it really made a difference on that record for sure. That was early days of, I th what was the first Dig multi-track? Uh, the, the, the 3348, was it a Sony or a Mitsubishi? Yes, I think it was either the Sony or the Mitsubishi, and they and Gus became very enamored with that. He really saw the writing on the wall, and he hired that machine into um, that studio to to cut to cut those cut those tracks. Wow. And I listen and I listen to it now, and it it is a bit. It could have done. I mean, this is my this is a classic case of teaching my grandmother to suck eggs here. I mean, who am I, who am I to talk about Gus and, you know, yeah. but it does sound a bit kind of brightish and it, it could have done with, I mean, these days you could, sure. you know, buy an, you know, you know better than yeah. I do. God knows how many analog style plugins there are to warm things up, but it could have done with a little bit of that down the low end, but it's, I'm very proud of it. Oh, it's incredible. The, the, Absolutely the, incredible. The, it's a good sounding and they and uh, is it what's his name the guy who did the remix Stephen? Um, um, I know what you mean. Did, he did all the yes ones. Uh, yeah. I, I know. Anyway, he yeah. re, he remixed it, and it's 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 as close as damn it. And it, I mean, Gus's mixes, I, those mixes, 
sound um, Nick David, is it? I, I forget. Uh, the guy who actually mixed the original. I see. Because, you know, there was a little bit of a falling out with Gus and Andy right at the, at the 11th hour. Oh, no, um, that's crazy. Yeah. And, and, well, Andy, bless him, falls out with nearly all his producers. Well, yeah. But um, somebody else came in and, and mixed it. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. It's a bottom line. It's a, you know what, AJ, bottom line, forget the drumming, the friggin' songs. It's all about the songs. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care whether it's me or Dave Clark or Fred Bloggs playing the drums. If you've got a great song, you've got a great song. You've got to get, and if you've got a great singer on top of that, there's your, there's your record. Well, that's 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 true, but it's you know somebody that's you know like yourself who knows how to paint the the proper picture around those songs. That's that's to to me that's every bit as important. So, but Andrew Partridge is one of my all time favorites. Um, it just you he know, can write a song. Oh my goodness, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just and his lyrics are so quirky and he just you know it's just wonderful. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Um, so from working, um, see, I'm kind of trying to go a little chronologically, but still jump. We kind of skipped Fairport Convention. I think that's a very important period in your life. Maybe you should do a little bit about how that, the folk explosion in the UK and all that. I know I'm going back a little bit, but um, I think yeah. I have to mention that. Um, tell me a little bit yeah. about how that all came together. I went from the the kind of the Lawrence Welke type of band, I mean, to, into auditioned. I think it's the only audition I've, I've ever done. And I got the gig with Fairport. And to cut another long story short, they very gently musically educated me. Wow. I think if it wasn't for them, AJ, I'd probably be playing 
a million notes in some bad fusion band now. <laughs> they really, they really kind of, they really educated me. They really taught me about song form and songwriting. And before that, up until that point, as the light bulb slowly started to glow, courtesy of that band, I was all technique, 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 chops, 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 chops. And basically, they I can say this, I'm not over-exaggerating, they, they really changed how I heard music and how I wanted to play music. I stopped being over-enamoured with people with phenomenal chops, and I started listening to what, people were saying musicians were saying whether it's trumpet sax keyboards drums sing i stopped being over enamored with how clever people were and i started paying attention to what was being said and that transition really happened because of them that's that's a lifelong change and that's probably what led you to be a producer is just be having that open mind and really understanding how all the different parts of the machine work together. And I think that probably led to you getting into production as well, you know, in some way, shape or form. You know? I have too much respect for producers. Um, and <laughs> you're certainly one of them to call myself a producer because I don't do enough of it. But when somebody did ask me a long time ago about when I did, when I'd done those Deborah Cohen um, records about it, I said, well, if there's one thing I know I've learned being around people like you and, and, and George and Glenn is what not to do. I know what I, I've got a fair idea what not to do. And that's a combination of how one reacts with the musicians and also to make sure that the vocal and the song always takes precedence you and i and many other producers who you and i both would look up to would come at it a different way it's sure. everyone's got a different way of of doing it but i think the, the the good ones never lose sight of the material and the singer that's very true you know um and uh yeah that's that's the the the, the, the art that more people need to talk about and i think this is great for drummers that are you know, listening here is is to to really, you know, you you might want to be a fusion drummer or you know play you know in eleven thirteen like a five against Zappa you know stuff and that's great to learn yeah. that stuff. But a, a lot of times in the in the professional world, when you get into a situation where you're being required to really be supportive, um, you you have to you you have to adapt and you have to really think about the song and 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 the and the melody and the 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 timing of everything yeah it's 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 a, it's a big job and i think you develop gut in what i call it's like a gut instinct it's like you make a lot of mistakes early on and sometimes you hear that in a supermarket somewhere and you like have an anxiety attack it's like you can't believe that you actually let something like that go and you start to develop this sort of a gut instinct when something happens you're like uh i got a funny feeling but that this is not good so let's what are we going to do here you know it's like maybe you know maybe the four on the floor thing at this tempo is going to really turn into a droggy thing you know and then you just you you, you nix it right away because you've already screwed up somebody else's song doing that <laughs> i mean i, I mean so, to be frank someone, someone said to me recently about about 
technique and you know the fact that I'm getting on and, and, and my standard reply these days is well the chops might not be what they were but the editing's definitely getting better <laughs> one. oh my goodness uh, this is so much fun I'm really enjoying this um <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I'm skipping around a little bit, but I'm going to jump in. No, don't, don't yeah. think twice. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump I'm, I'm into... Flat, I'm flattered you're interested. Oh. And it's just great to see you and hook up again. It's wonderful, it's man. I was I wanted to get a little bit into George Harrison. What was he like? Another one of my heroes. Uh, some of the most interesting guitar sounds and just his whole approach just slays me always. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Well, I think... I think... Keltner was definitely resting between engagements because I remember bumping into Jim not long after I'd done a few ch tracks with with um, George and he said he said you better look out I'm back now <laughs> <laughs> I remember Jim saying that to me a long time ago um I I uh, my friend Ray Cooper got me into the um got me into the sessions for George and I didn't do much. Um, I think I'm on one or two tracks on somewhere in England. And the end title track of the film, The Time Bandits. Yes. That's, uh, that, those are the only things I did with George. I would have loved to have done more, but um, <laughs> Jim came back on the scene. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I didn't have my, I didn't have my, my, my Jim Kelter impersonation was, um, was pretty bad on that one track that I did play on on somewhere in England but um <laughs> I I just remember the 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 initially it was a little strange because the first day AJ was I think and this has been no uh, this is on record the first day I did with George um it was the day after John got shot oh my goodness and initially again long story short the session was going to get called off but Ray called me back and said George doesn't want to sit around thinking about it. He'd rather track today. So I met up with Ray and we went to the house and, and we, you know, and we spent the day tracking. And then I can't remember. I think I went back and did some more. I honestly can't remember. It's been, it's such a long time Just ago. This, but yeah. George, George, unsurprisingly, AJ, he was an absolute sweetheart. And as was, Danny was very, very young. Um, and Olivia was charming and made food for us all. And we sat around afterwards. And Wow, what a story. Yeah. yeah. yeah just these icons to, to, to actually, you know, to, to be with these people. It's, it's amazing to share this because, like, it's just, it's just, it's hard to comprehend for me. You know, it's, uh, another. Well, well, I've been very fortunate. Though. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite artists as a, uh, growing up as a kid was also Jethro Tull. And you tell the most. Right amazing story about your first meeting with him um I, I, maybe i'll have to refresh you what i remember was he had asked you he was going to ask you to to do some touring i think and and you looked at him and he said well there's just one thing you need to know he and you said i don't do that and you did the thing with the with the arms <laughs> he's like I laughed so hard because you know we all know that like usually that's what you see at a Jethro Tull concert. So, exactly. So how yeah. did that go? <laughs> well, you know, I have to. Don Perry, who's a great friend of mine, is a phenomenal drummer, but we, we're very, very different. I mean, and and you know Barry Morbalo and all those all those players that went through the band and I, Dave Pegg, again because he could Dave Pegg the the Fairport bass player. He did 13, 14 years with Tull 
and in the middle of his of ah, that period, he okay. did, Ian Ian was coming and checking out Fairport, Got so it. he heard Fairport, and anyway, Dave Pegg said to me, "I think Ian's going to call you," and I went, "Really?" <laughs> so anyway, blah blah blah. He calls me, and I go, "Well, you know, I'm incredibly flattered, but I can't do." What you said, I, I, I can't, I can't, and I, I, I don't play double bass drum, and you know, yeah. uh, my idea of a big kit is is two floor tom toms, you know. <laughs> so I can't, I can't do all that stuff. And he went, long story short, he went, where's the effect? No, do your thing, but inside Jethro Tull. And I said, well, if you think we can do it. It, we can make it work. And the first, I did a year, and the first six months, I played snare drum, bass drum, hi-hat, one crash ride cymbal, and I had a glockenspiel on one side and a three-octave keyboard on the other. And I was playing kind of keyboard parts, the odd string part, and doing glockenspiel and, and literally playing snare drum, bass drum, and one cymbal. And that's what's on A Little Light Music. Oh, there's, wow. There's a little light music is bass drum, snare drum, hi hat, one cymbal, and the glockenspiel and the keyboard. But it, uh, <laughs> do you know Jonathan Mover? Yes, I do. John, we, yeah, we, yeah, we, great yeah he's a John, friend. John, John and I are good friends. And he said, until you told me that, I didn't realize that on that record when I listened to it. And I said, well, listen to it again. I'm going to have to go went, back and listen to it now. Yeah. He said, oh, I had, I, I had no, I think Ian, Ian, put some tambourine on afterwards but what i did was just those things was the one the one symbol like a crash side and anyway the second half of the year he when we came over to the states he added a key because it was just a four piece and then we, on the second half of the year when we came to the states he added a keyboard player and i went to full kit okay with with the big kit with two floor tones, <laughs> you know. and, uh, but the, the the album, a little light music, is just that basic setup. I'm going to have to go back and listen. I never knew that. Um, yeah, so interesting. But, but it was a good. It was a really enjoyable year. I I had a great time. And 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 again, AJ, I, I'm very flattered. He never told me what to play. He never told me what to play. I my, I had so many people and we said. He's going to be tough. Oh, he's going to be on your case. And I, about five or six gigs in, I missed a um, a, a visual clue, a cue rather, and I missed it. And he said at the end, he said, "You must watch me because when I go, blah blah blah, that means blah blah blah." I said, "I'm really sorry, I did miss that cue." And that's all he said to me about. He never told me what to play. Wow. Never told me what to play. It was like, here's the songs, learn the arrangement, play. The stuff he never told me what to play. Wow! And I, which after the story, the horror stories. Oh man, he's going to eat you alive, and oh, he's going to be on your. And he was a sweetheart. He was fine. fine. He's such a poet too. I I really I I love listening to those. Those, you know, everyone knows the heavy stuff, but the 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 other stuff, the lighter stuff. Great oh, I love I love the skating away and all those types of like. There you go. You yeah. know, um, it's just so much beautiful. Like those early albums, like Stand Up and stuff. They always had you know Back to the Family. They always had some of these really folky things. And now I think yeah. about that, that makes sense why Fairport Convention might have attracted him to you. That makes it makes perfect sense to me now. Um, I'm going to. You know that there was yeah. there was two or three tours um, that Tull did 
um, state stores where Fairport opened. Oh wow! No kidding. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's so you had you had a history without before you even got to that point. Yeah, before I got asked to do it. Yeah, and poor Dave Dave Pegg. Initially, it was uh, <laughs> the initially it was like, well, it's all right for Peggy. He's flying all over. Dave, we call him Peggy. Yeah. It's all right for Peggy. He's flying to all the gigs. And then we realized that he was a working his ass off and, and then doing double duty because he'd do like 40 minutes with Fairport, then he'd get a break and then he'd do an hour and three quarters or two hours with Tal. The poor guy was, yeah, he deserved to buy him. We're, we're, we're chasing him across the States in a couple of RVs, by the way, which was, <laughs> there's another saga. I right? did, I, yeah, I, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that either. Wow. Yeah. Um, so one other anyway, um, um, one other artist I, I have to mention um, is Brian Eno. Um, uh-huh. what, what was the connection with Brian Eno? I saw that in one of your discographies. Somewhere. Yeah, I just I played on. Is it before and after science? Or I think yes, it's, I'm on, yes. I'm on one or two tracks of that, and I think another Green World or something. I, I'll be honest, I don't remember much about it because yeah. it was kind of brief. But what I do remember, he and um, Bill Nelson from the band who used to be Bebop um, Deluxe, but that was Bebop later. Deluxe. I did, I did an, an album with Bill. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but I did an album with, with Bill Nelson and Brian and both those people, both of them had an effect upon teaching me about what was capable in the studio because I was up until that point, AJ, I, I, I kind of saw it, the studio in a more conventional way, i.e. you go in, you get a sound and you play the song and you record it. Right. Very kind of old school conventional and both Brian and, and Bill opened me up to using the studio more as a tool. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but well, no, you know, I'm, you're a, you're a, I'm not stroking you here, man. You're a master of knowing how to do that. And, 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 and I started to get a whiff of that, if you will, working with those two guys. I, it was like, Oh yeah, you don't have to do this and we can change this. You know, the snare drum, we don't have to have the perfect snare drum sound or the, but, you know, we can change things around and it becomes a different thing. I think those you, two. Yeah, guys, I think you and I might have messed around with very speed a little bit with Cariati. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. one, one of my favorite tricks is to play the song faster. And then, you know, you, you go to the regular speed and suddenly the, the toms sound like big rubber balls underwater. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I love to experiment, you know, and I think I think, yeah. well, Eno was definitely one of my heroes. Um, you know, all the ambient music and all the stuff he did with you, too. I mean, I I've always had that experimental nature. I think it's just something that uh, I don't know if it, I just did it because I just always wanted to 
keep learning and trying different things. I, you know, you get stale if you just do the same thing, you know, and to, exactly. to, to be in the music production for three decades, you're going to run out of ideas if you don't just keep searching, you know? So exactly. That's the, I, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you, like I said, you've, you've really, you've, you've got, you've really got that down. And, and, and with, with those guys, they, they were the two guys, <coughs> excuse me, that, yeah, introduced me to that, way of thinking let's put it that way yeah well you know i want to get into a, for the last you know segment here i'd like to talk about your move from the uk to the united states you moved to um you know the new england and and you have such a great musical world there and i think it's important that people know you know about duke levine and some of these incredible players that you work with and i just want to you know give those those people that shout out as well because I'm, I'm you know i'm from new england myself i mean i grew up there um you know, I'm Canadian, but I grew up there, and right. I just love the scene there. And I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the, that whole era. You know, and, and well, I don't know if you know this, but Duke is now playing with Bonnie Raitt. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah, he's been with her for about a year now. That just gives you an idea about where he stands. Oh, he's he's him. he's incredible. Yeah, he's ridiculous, man. He's so good. And Kevin Barry, um, phenomenal, who's kind of musical partner. He did. Um, I think he did the last Jackson Brown tour. I mean, those, yeah. So there's, it's, I mean, the standard of playing around here is, is pretty. It's pretty high. Good. It's, it's a good scene without, with, I, I like it because it's not like a, you know, I have to be careful. <laughs> choosing, my word, choosing my words here. I, I just, I'm, yeah, I like it around here. I like it around here. It's a good scene. You know, I, I do gigs, you know, with people I like. I do, pub gigs and everything but then i'll go into a studio and uh, with some you know some some good studios around yeah, here yeah q and, division is fantastic a lot of great studios yeah, q, q's just um had a complete overhaul i haven't been into the new looks fabulous yet, yeah wonderful it, it does look really really good but there's a lot of really really good studios around here and and you know the, as as i'm fond of saying you know they can't you know, as you and i know they can't all be richard thompson and 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 Sandy Denny's and Mary Chapin Carpenter. So it's our gig to kind of. It's wonderful. I mean, we have a mutual friend in Steve Sadler, for instance. He's a multi-instrumentalist. And and I'm playing with Steve next week. Yeah. Tell him I said, hi, he's one of my favorite I will, man. I will. He's played on hundreds of songs with me. Hundreds. Yeah. Literally. He's wonderful. I mean, he picks up a 1918 mandolin and blows your mind. And he does lap steel and all these crazy tunings. And he's, you know, he'll yeah. tell you funny stories about the guy Sal Hooper, who the invented the slack steel, like and how he does the minor. Like I mean, the guy's just a musical wizard. So yeah, it's great to 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 reconnect with the New England thing. And I really miss um, recording in New England. There's a lot of great great people there, and that must be what attracted you to that that part of the yeah, world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it, in part, again, I'll give you the short version, so we don't send the listeners into a coma. Um, <laughs> the back end of the '90s, I I kind of got to the end of the line a little bit with Fairport um but more importantly I was working I got the gig with Mary Chapin Carpenter and Duke was in her band at the time and started to introduce me to a lot of Boston musicians and I was also friend with a uh, with a great um engineer super guy Tom Doobie who was doing monitors for Richard and uh, Richard Thompson and he lives in Boston as well. So between those two people, they started introducing me to people. And we were looking at New England and blah, blah, blah. And one thing led to another. And 
Yeah. I just love the coast there too, where you are. You know, I was a big striper fisherman. I used to be up in Gloucester on Bass Rocks like several days a week. Well, Dave, (laughs) it's been so fantastic. I just, I just, I'm, I'm so honored to have you and you've had so many great stories. I mean, somebody who hung out with John Bonham is just like, that just, I'm like, I, I know I'm speechless. I'm a little starstruck and I've known you a long time. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, star, starstruck, Yeah. Well, we got to find a way to do some long distance collaboration because I really miss um, working with you, and we got to figure out a way because I, I, I don't really enjoy playing drums as much as I used to. I, I, I just, uh, I, I find myself analyzing every hit, going, oh, oh no, oh, uh, uh. it's like I've spent too much time in front of Pro Tools, and I literally sometimes I actually torture myself when I'm playing, thinking about like how much better it could be. <laughs> <laughs> you think, you think you're, spending too, you're spending too much time thinking about what the screen looks like yeah exactly <laughs> so I, I would just love to get creative with you again on anything and we'll find a way to, to do you record drums in, in your in your house still no okay i don't i don't but i've got a very good friend uh mike barry yeah who um as in the band did i i think i sent you the super genius oh wonderful stuff. i love that stuff that's another whole topic yeah, that's and, wonderful and also all the drums uh, on the Deb Cohen, well, actually, the whole, virtually the whole of the Deb Cohen albums were recorded at Mike's place, and then we sent them to um, Huck Bennett to mix. Oh yeah, Huck, Huck, I know Huck from the back yeah, you from know the Chucklehead yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. He's, he he's great. But yeah. but all the recording was done at Mike Berry's stuff. Fantastic. So, although it's modest, we in between us we've got some because I've bought a lot of mics, and between what what Mike Barry has. And what I've got and Mike's skill as a recording engineer, yeah, we can get some good stuff. We're going to do that. Okay. So right. this is, we came together for an extra reason, you know. I'll, I'll pencil it in right now. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm just so happy to spend this time with you and we really are uh, honored to have you and we'll be in oh, touch. Man, I'm, you I'm know. flattered. I'm flattered, man. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you. much for coming. Uh, nice, to, nice to natter. Oh, I'm, I'm honored. All right, guys. I'm going to say Studio Secrets A to Z, signing off with the wonderful Dave Maddox. You guys got to check out some of these records he's talking about. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 